Good afternoon. Welcome to Talent and Growth. Good morning to you, Matthew. Very early morning. Uh, thank you for locking on today. Um, it's the three musketeers today. We're, we're one, one man down. Uh, Danny, unfortunately, couldn't make it. Uh, but I've got no doubt we've got plenty of conversation to be had in this room. So we're going to be talking today about uh, interview processes and how to how to get the mo most out of them, how to make them efficient, inclusive, effective, um, and what that, that kind of, hopefully we can come away from this conversation with a, with a blueprint for what that really good interview process should look like. But before we get to that, of course, some introductions. So uh, Matthew, good morning uh, from New York. I think it's 7 a.m. your time. Thank you for locking on. Give us a bit of an intro to who you are and what you do. 7 a.m. Yeah, after a long holiday weekend too. So it's uh, it's like our it's our Monday here, of course. So um, first of all, thank you so much for, for having me on, uh, Matthew Brunwasser. Um, I'm based in New York and Brooklyn. Um, have a uh, head of people for sauce. I'm not sure if you could tell, I you know, decided to wear some, some swag today. Um, but yeah, I, I have a bit of a different upcoming into HR and people through hospitality and, and managing people directly uh, through there. And um, through COVID found my way into recruiting and, and HR and um, have grown through some acquisitions and some startups and corporations and now back into the startup world, uh, as I said, leading people for a international company that's only eight or nine in the U.S., but about, but about 65, 70 uh, worldwide. So excited to, to be here. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Matthew. Appreciate that. Fresh off Memorial Weekend, straight into webinar. I love it. Uh, Reka, welcome back to Talent Grove. Quick, quick intro to who you are and what you do, for those who don't know you. Hi. Uh, my background is nowhere near as interesting as Matthew's. Mine's way much more conventional. Um, but uh, a mix of both agency and in-house, I've pretty much focused on tech uh, my whole career. Um, I've built teams, I've built processes, particularly interview process for, um, processes from scratch. Um, it's something I'm super passionate about, particularly as, um, as, as you know, Paul, I'm really in, um, really passionate about DEI, and the two things actually go really close together. Um, and really excited to be here. Uh, advance warning for everyone: I am not a hundred percent. So if you hear a cough sweet in the background or a cough, I apologise in advance. So thanks for being here. Thanks for soldiering on. Look, even a 50% maker is going to be good enough for talent and growth. So don't worry about that. We're going to be all good. So um, let's get into it. So let's just, we're going to break down the various components of, of the interview process. But if we could just, I suppose, start off with a, a general question around this. And Matthew, I'll, I'll start with you. So for you, when, when we're talking about what an effective interview process looks like, what, something that assesses uh, skills, but still gives good experience. What are the key components that stand out to you? Do you know those, those boxes that need to be ticked? Yeah, you know, when it comes to interview process in particular, because <clears throat> obviously when it comes to the search or recruiting interview process, just one of many ways that impact uh, that search. You know, the interview process to me, I, I view it as one long interview. That's always how I've, how I've viewed it rather than um, each interview being its own piece, I view it as one long interview. Um, and the reason I do that is because you don't need every person coming on asking, hey, tell me about your experience. Tell me about what you've done. Tell me, because that wastes 10, 12 minutes each interview process. So I, I find it very important that when you look at the interview process, the people involved, the questions being asked, the interviews being had, whether it's technical or take-home test or an actual face-to-face -face, um, it's very important to to just not overlap so much. And so, in, you know, we've had been in interview processes in the past where hiring managers were doing three interviews or two interviews or four interviews just to go
go over different things rather than consolidating into one or, or maybe two if need be. But I think it's just very important to get the, the, the right stakeholders in. Sometimes we overdo, oh, but they need to speak with this person and it would be good for them to speak to this person. So I think the, the few things that determine are who are the most important stakeholders that need to speak to this person um, and what is, what is the minimum amount of information we need to make a decision here. Because I, I think a lot of times we assume that it's the same role we're hiring in the past. Do we need all the same information we had in the past? But sometimes I feel like we, we should learn from interview processes. You, you hired once, what worked, what didn't work. The next one shouldn't be exactly the same always. And so I always think it's important to iterate, but always make sure you understand what is the most minimum information possible that you can get through because it's a challenging world to hire right now and going against, especially as a startup, going against some big corporations or companies who are very, very aggressive in their hiring, we can't waste any time through the interview process uh, or else we might lose traction on a great candidate who might go somewhere else. And so I think knowing the, the minimum, amount in, minimum amount of information possible that can get you through this role, as well as the most important stakeholders should be determined, you know, before, you know, the process every time. And for you, Matthew, what's, how many steps should there be? Although it's one long interview, so I get that absolutely, but how many steps should that be, do you think? What's the magic number? I don't, I don't know if there's one magic number for every role or every level, right? I mean, if you're, we, we just hired a ton of people in Argentina and uh, across uh, Eastern Europe with three, three interviews, right? There's a culture interview, there's a hiring manager interview, and then there's a peer interview. And, and, and that was all we needed. We were hiring, you know, entry level or second or third level roles where people are coming in with zero to five years experience. Um, and the most important thing for us being a company that's new and upcoming, you can't expect people to have experience doing exactly what we're doing. But if they have, if they have, if their culture adds, right, we don't look for culture fits, but culture adds, that, that's the most important thing for us. We can teach, we can show, but if they have the basic skills and the culture ad, that's great. And all we needed was three. That, those were the two things that we decided that the minimum we needed was culture ad and some sort of technical knowledge for our technical support role. They didn't need to have the delivery or, right? But then you go up to maybe a VP, we're hiring a head of sales at the moment as well, right? So when you're looking at a head of sales, we're, we've had people go through a six or seven interview process because at the end of the day, um, especially for such a small company that doesn't have a lot of stakeholders, just because we don't have four or five stakeholders to speak to them doesn't mean there's information that's necessary that we we're just going to avoid because we don't have those people. So, you know, unfortunately for us, we're having three or four hiring manager interviews, which is our CEO, because it's really important for our CEO who's bringing in someone to take over this type of role to find the right person. Right. So first role, three interviews, this head of sales role could be six, seven, eight interviews. I think, the six, seven, eight should really be the maximum. You know, I was, I was at DoorDash. Um, we started a project where we were auditing every single interview process for every single level and every role. And we were starting to find 10, 11, 12 interview processes. Um, and it, it was just, it was a lot. And so they made a maximum um, for each level. You know, lowest was three or four. Highest was about eight or nine. And you really should be anywhere in between that. Frankly, I think the sweet spot is that four to six number. You shouldn't really net role. You shouldn't ever need more than four, three to four. I think is great for a higher level role. I don't think you should need more than six, but if you need that seventh or eighth, because you're including a take home test of sorts or a technical test of sorts, then I think that seven, eight number is that max, but that four to six, I think is the sweet spot for, for most of them. Really interesting. Thanks, Matthew. Right, go on. Yeah. Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> 
four to six just sounds horrific. Um, and the fact that you could go beyond that. Um, so do I think like it can it can absolutely vary? Yes. Uh, complexity, seniority of role will absolutely um, change the requirements of what you're trying to assess, how you can assess that, who they need to meet. So could it go beyond what I, I think you can do most interviews in two or three stages, uh, or most roles, I should say, in two or three stages. Um, but um, I think if you're doing, I think if you're doing anything beyond that, they should be out of the norm as opposed to the to the norm. Um, mainly because I think there's um, there's a balance right between making the process um, effective and getting the information that you want as a company, but also giving the candidate a really positive experience, a real good insight into the um, into the culture of the company, not just about the details of the role. But I think um, one of the challenges, I think, particularly in senior positions, actually, when you're interviewing for senior roles, is um, ma managing uh, interviewer ego, shall we say, like um, thinking that they need to be in that interview process as opposed to trusting the core of... <laughs> their peers or other people in the process because that role has already been defined you've already been able to break it down into okay outside of seniority whichever th these are the key things that we actually need to know and this is how we're going to assess them and these are the people that they need to meet you don't need to keep adding to that list so um yeah so for me the answer to the magic question would be two or three and i think actually if you have a good internal recruiter that, that's where the two can come in because they can they can they they can cover off a lot of those basics. Um, I say basics, but even some of the more in depth stuff that the that, that they'll be like, oh, are they a culture? Well, actually, you know what? If I'm putting the candidate in front of you, there's a degree of you need to trust me that I I know what I'm doing. Um, For sure. So you can you can absolutely cut off um, some of the work, should we say, that the candidate needs to put in. Um, but yeah, four to six for me would be outside of the norm and definitely more for more complex or more senior positions. I, I would only add that when for us, we include, you know, the culture, the culture screening, which happens before and take home tests in our interview process. So most of our technical roles, we have a technical take home test of sorts, plus the hiring manager interview, plus the culture screening from the from the recruiter. So just from that is three, uh, almost every single time. So that's why I say for us, two is really tough. And and when it when it comes to candidate experience, also, we, and I speak from more of a startup viewpoint. Um, in our opinion, it actually only adds to the candidate experience speaking to a high level interviewer for a candidate, especially at a lower level. Hey, we'd love for you to speak to our CEO. Hey, we'd love for you to speak to our COO. We've actually found that that's a very exciting thing for some candidates who are already made it through more of the technical or difficult parts of the, of the interview process. That last interview is not usually to determine whether they're a proper candidate or not, but we have found that it actually drives a lot of excitement because they're able to talk about the mission and, and what brought us here. Now, when you're talking about large companies, right? Not, not everyone's speaking to the COO or CEO, but you know, at, at small companies, we have to find wins, right? Uh, we have to find ways to, to win people over compared to some other companies. And we have just found that that additional CEO kind of exec leadership interview has been very, we, we talk about the power of the CEO for us all. You know, sometimes there's candidates I find on LinkedIn and I say, hey, can you message them rather than me? Just because the power of the CEO can really be strong in the interview process. Um, but yeah, look, four to six, I, I think the only reason why I say that is only because 
peer interview, hiring manager interview, culture interview, and take-home tests, and now you're at four interviews. So for us, you know, three to four would be ideal, but I do think when you look at majority of companies, four to five is probably average. Doesn't make it you know perfect, but I do think that's probably average when you take in every aspect of the interview process. Thanks, Matthew. And, and so I asked a asked a grenade of a question there, didn't I, with the, with the, with the uh, number round? So, Rachel, if we we could come back to this, but I'd also just by the way, I've heard of um, I have some friends who work in the banks, and the standard there is somewhere between twelve and fifteen stages. For yeah. Their oh so, um, so it goes, you know, where do you start, Rachel? What when you're I know you've done this with Armacuni. When you're putting together an interview process, what are those key components for you? What are those boxes we need to tick that for you to be happy with it? So I, f- I feel like you need to go back to two things, the job description itself and the career framework for the company. So you're going to have key competencies, you're going to have key skills and literally break it down from that as to what are you assessing as opposed to um the interviewer turning up and going, oh, I'm going to, I feel like I want to discuss this today. No, literally structure your interview around the role itself. Um, um, I think it's probably one of the, the key things. That in itself means you can drive more consistency throughout the process. It means you can drive um, more fairness um, and therefore as a result, I, I, I say appeal, but be more inclusive in that process um, to more to more people. Um, I think it's really important to be transparent. Um, so the more you can share with the candidate upfront, the better. Um, I'm I'm really not into interviews that um, you get the candidate in and the purpose is to freak them out and interrogate them. Um, there are companies that still do that, and if that works for them, cool. But like. I don't like it. I don't really see the point. Unless that's actually reflective of what it's like to work in that company, then actually they're doing the right thing. They're reflecting their company culture through the interview process. So you're going to interrogate everyone every two minutes? Sure. Do show that in your interview process. But for me, I think um, being transparent, being conversational, um, asking questions and actually listening to the answer, like active listening for interviewers, I think is super key. Um, so it's not just, um, okay, I need to get them through that answer and then I need to ask a different question. At follow up, like build a rapport with that candidate, actually pay attention to what they're saying. Um, and uh, prompt, prompt feedback, I think. So no one wants to do an interview and then a week later still not know where they stand. Um, so being able to have agreed SLAs with your internal team around when they're sharing feedback, I think is really important. Um, ideally, you're building some automation so that you don't have to chase them all the time. They'll get that automatic um, chase themselves. Um, and you know what? Let's be honest. Even if you do all of those things, you're not always going to get the feedback um, in the time that you that you would want or that is ideal. Tell the candidate, be honest with the candidate as to where and what's going on. I'm sorry, people are out of the office. I'm sorry, they're away. I'm sorry, you know what? Everyone's just really busy right now. You're not any less important. Although I would argue it probably seems that way for the candidate. So I think prompt feedback, I think, and prompt and useful feedback, I think is really important. Yeah, some really, really good stuff there. And just while you were talking about all these absolutely correct 
uh, components of what a good interview should look like. One thing sprang to mind, and bear in mind, I spent a lot of time in a uh, recruitment agency world and talk about putting people under pressure. So I was in an interview and I was uh, not the, the main, I was the second manager, if you like. So there's a more senior person came in with me to interview a grad. And the senior manager came in, he got the CV off the table, ripped it up, and then said to the candidate, what's the hire Gosh. <laughs> I mean, like, there is a degree of though right like in a sales environment because that's what it's like when you work agency like there is a degree of you are under that constant pressure so again if that reflects your culture fine um but for me what I have always found is like you don't get the like irrelevant of whether it's reflecting your culture you're not getting the best from that candidate by putting them in that situation nobody uh, very nobody very few people do their best when they're in that sense of uh, fear or um, under that level of pressure. So actually just trying to build that rapport, making it conversational, um, I think find, find that that often just works better. You as a company get more from it than, yeah, ripping up the CV in front of them. <laughs> Well, well, I'm glad we've progressed in the world with interviews anyway. Uh, Matthew, so... You mentioned one one long interview, which I like that. I like that way to kind of frame it. What what are you doing to make sure that process is consistent and authentic? And bearing in mind you are linking up different departments and high managers, but what's the what's the clue that's holding it all together? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's having an early structure that can right. So it, it depends on where you're entering the stage, right? So uh, as Rekha uh, said before, she's built interview processes from scratch and we've entered places where have had interview processes built out. Right. So I think it's different when you're in both situations, but I think early on, it's so important to try to build that structure first rather than waiting to, Oh, well, we'll just, we'll go as fast as we can early just so we can hire people. And then at a certain point we'll uh, go back and we'll implement interview structures and processes. And, and, and for, you know, at, I'm actually at that point right now where, we're, we've been building interview processes for new organizations and teams that we've been creating as we go. Because like I said, we're, we're eight people in the US. Uh, we had, we, we've been hiring in Argentina where we had two people. Now we have 15 people. So we, we, we build these processes early, even if the right people aren't here yet. And multiple people have to kind of fill in for these interview processes, because at least we know the structure is there and those people can come in and enter at the right time. But I think the most important thing is something Rekha also mentioned before is like building that trust with not just the hiring managers. Frankly, I find that the actual hiring manager has more trust than a lot of times, either whether it's their superior or the CEO or COO, like wherever you might be, if it's a small company, a lot of time getting the buy-in from the person who's actually making that final decision or um, a managing the budget for this organization, that's the hardest person to get buy-in from sometimes uh, because they're not always part of the interview process, whether it's a finance person, a CEO, um, the VP or head of a department, they're not always part of that interview process. They don't speak to the candidate. And so I think really building the trust with people outside the interview process who are important to that budget or that organization is huge. Uh, really getting buy-in from people who will interact and will work with these candidates or these people filling these roles is just as important as building that structure in the process for these interviewers and hiring managers. Um, but yeah, you know, when it comes to building questions and each part of the interview process, it, it just, it takes time and work. You, you sometimes even need to 
test some things out and try some things before you get to the final questions that you're going to be using. You're going to have to test out interview people. Oh, I, we use this hiring this person in the interview process. We realize now that doesn't make sense. They had a conversation. It doesn't work. So I think it's about iterating. Like I said before, is just you never have a perfect interview process. I think there's always way to build and, and, and be, have a better interview process. But it starts at the beginning. You have to build structure. You have to get buy-in from the right people internally in the process, but especially people outside the process who will be interacting with these folks as well. Thanks, Matthew. Yeah. Rachel, anything to add on that? Yeah, so I find um, we'll, we'll do a kickoff meeting when we get a new role come through. Um, we're defining the role. We might be writing the job description. At the very least, you're definitely writing the job ad, and we talk about how we're going to source and all of those kind of things. But what we don't often do um, that I've been doing is what's really useful you get all of that done but then before you even start interviewing before you even start um uh, reaching out to candidates uh is to do a kickoff meeting with everyone in that process so not just the hiring manager um so um if if they're interviewers if they're um key stakeholders as matthew said um anyone that's got a potential say in that process or is going to be in, in part of that process do a meeting, get all aligned on what it is that you're even trying to achieve. Um, because the amount of times, I say even just a dev, but it doesn't matter what the role is. Um, and you all think you're looking for different things. Like it might be really clear to one person, but that might not be the same thing for everyone. So get really aligned on what you're trying to actually achieve by the new hire um, and by what each of the parts of the interview process itself looks like. In terms of being able to try and build that consistency across the company, particularly across different departments, it's hard. It's really, really difficult. Like, how do you compare someone that sits in the marketing function and benchmark them in the same way that you would do as someone that sits in finance or in technology? Um, so I, I feel like there's a degree of like acceptance that you can't do everything. Um, but what you can do is if you have a defined company culture, if you have defined values, being able to build that in as part of the process so that there's a degree of calibration um, on culture ad um, the whole way through the process, regardless of department. Um, but then I think it's um, interviewer training. Um, so making sure all the interviewers go through that training, um, being sure, kind of building on the kickoff meeting where you're then also doing calibration um, feedback sessions. So you, you, what a Java, good Java dev looks like in one team might be different to another. Let's make sure that there's parity across the board on what that looks like, even if the finer requirements are a little bit different. Um, and using candidate feedback. So it's not just us as a company giving feedback to the candidate. Candidates giving feedback on what they have found the process to be, um, whether that be the questions, whether it be the people, whether it be the stages, um, you know, whatever it might be, but asking them consistently for feedback, I think that really helps. Um, and that can feed into kind of your data and your metrics around being able to recognize whether there's any particular challenges, um, whether that be around a particular interviewer that no one gets past because their bar is super high or someone that always says yes to somebody um, or maybe based on the feedback, actually the candidates have experienced um, something that maybe isn't aligned to that company culture. So I think as many different ways of um, tracking that info, I think is really important outside of all the training that you can put in place. Like that's only half the battle. Being able to actually assess it, I think is the, is the next thing. 
In terms of that that feedback piece, are you using um, a particular tool or automation to generate that feedback for you? Have you got like a Raker type chatbot out there doing it for you or are you, are you doing it manually? How's it working? Yeah, so I haven't told you about this, Paul, but I have a clone that does all of this. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so um, most ACSs have this built in, um, uh, whether it be sending out candidate surveys or whether it be, um, so, so you're not having to pay specifically for a, a, a separate tool. It may not cover everything that you need um, in the standard questions that they have. But then again, there's usually workarounds even within the system. There are other ways and means of being able to um, assess that feedback. Um, but I think outside of the platform of what you're using to do that, I think it is like, when are you asking? How often are you asking? What types of the, what types of questions are you actually asking? Um, for me, I think it's really important to have a mix of both quantitative questions and qualitative questions in order to be able to get that real mix. Like someone just hits 10 to everything. It doesn't really give you an answer. Um, but if someone's saying... Um, I don't know. I, I didn't feel comfortable in this interview. That, but that's useful. It might it might be a one off experience, but you don't know that unless you're consistently asking the same question. Um, but most ATSs have this built in, um, but there are tools out there that you can that you can use as well. Awesome. Thanks for that. So, it's so interesting, Paul, just to hear um, these two like two very different perspectives of like. Our company, I wish we had so much set up. We don't have an ATS. We don't, you know, we're, we're very early um, in our stages here at hiring in the U.S. So it's, I think it's such a great way to hear how a company that's very set up, how they organize and structure and how they operate. And for us, like, you know, I, we, we operate very, very ad hoc because that's just, that's, that's how it happens. Like things come up and sometimes you just have to change the process, you know, we, we don't, we only have three or four people who can even participate in interview processes. There's not even more than that. Right. So I think it's just so interesting, Rekha, just hearing how, how you're structured. Uh, I really appreciate your perspective. Okay. So I've definitely been in that scenario where not only do I not have the tools, but I also have no budget to spend on anything. Right. Um, and uh, when in doubt, Google. Uh, so you can, build, <laughs> you can build a Google form um, that literally you can just send the link oh. out and put that oh. information together. Oh, yeah. And you can and you can integrate from Google Forms into I mean, I use Zapier quite a lot, but um, so that as and when something else happens, this happens. So um, oh. and building in that automation. So like there are workarounds if you don't have the tooling, but um, gosh, it's been years since I didn't have an ATS. So respect. I have no idea how you have that level of patience. I've built a manual one, which is very, very interesting. Cool. That is that does certainly be interesting to hear about that actually. But um, actually, just in, I mean, I, I, I'm in a similar situation as you, Matthew. Sometimes because we're working with quite early stage businesses, and you know they haven't got ATSs, and so you know for all, for instance, um, one company I was working with didn't have a careers page nor see a point in it because they thought, well, no one's going to Google our name or want to come and look for a job at the start day. Which, which there's logic to that, but of course we know that the careers page is that window people need to go to. Just in terms of um, one thing I found when I didn't have an ATS because I wanted to make sure I was getting feedback from candidates. Um, an, an easy way to do this is uh, I bodged a couple of things together. I used Canonly to book all my screening calls with, with candidates. And then I then I set up a, a workflow, an automated response from Canonly with a type form 
a survey in it and I found that worked quick pretty well because I didn't have that access to that ATS. So it's uh, that's useful for anyone and hopefully that helps. Um, moving on though, um, Matthew, let's talk about inclusivity, making sure our processes are fair. How are we making sure that we're providing an equal opportunity for all candidates, regardless of background or density or whatever? How are we making sure it's a fair, inclusive process? Yeah, the, the, and this is always hard. I think even when you try to do it, it's still hard because there's... Uh, people who just have different access to things that you just don't necessarily know about. And it's hard to pinpoint how you access or reach those people. But, you know, getting, getting your jobs onto not just LinkedIn, but to other job pages that are more easily accessible for people who maybe don't have a LinkedIn, LinkedIn account or don't know how to set up a LinkedIn account, but are, can, can search very easily, like you said, on Google or other Glassdoor or some other job pages um, that are simple. But, I also think it's it's really important to put an effort into this. A lot of people just think, oh, well, I, I put it on all the websites. I put it on our career page. Whoever applies, applies. That's who, that's who I'm going to speak to. But I think it's important to make sure, especially when you're tracking the data and the numbers, that you put an effort into finding people to, to bring diversity to, to, the, to the process. Because if you, if you allow the candidates to dictate the you know, who's in your process, you're going to get most of the people who have the easiest access to applying to your role or reaching out to you or getting in contact with you. The other side of it has to be an effort on our side, whether it's the recruiter, the people, the hiring manager side, um, to really make it, whether it's making it accessible for others. And if you don't have that opportunity, right, with us, we have no ATS. We don't have something that just shoots it out to 10, 12, 15 different web pages or things like that. So it's really important for us to go and make the effort to get it onto some of those pages and to to speak to people who um, are not, uh, you know, maybe who haven't applied and didn't even know about the role, but you're reaching out because you want to bring that diversity and bring that inclusion. But I, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say that it's an easy task. I, I find it to be probably the hardest part of my job is to just always ensure um, inclusion and diversity in the candidate experience and in the interview process. Um, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, there's there's tons of ways we can try to do this, but it, it, there's not a ton of ways that are tried and true, right? It's still something I think we're going through these days, these years. But the most important thing is to try to make it as accessible as possible for every individual, whether it's your website, different job pages, um, an interview process that's accessible to sometimes. Oh, well, let's do a video call. Maybe someone is hard of sight, and it, it, you know, a video call doesn't make sense for them, or uh, or hard of hearing and, and speaking to you doesn't make sense to them, right? Maybe a, an email chain of discussions is more, is more efficient or better for them. So I think it's just really important to understand that every candidate you speak to is going to be different and to not just assume that your interview process is going to work for them, but to adjust if for some reason it doesn't. Um, you know, always be cognizant and aware and, and ask, why, you know, you can always ask, hey, does a video call work? Is something else better? Doesn't don't hey, here's the video call link. See you there. You know, sometimes it's just an assumption that we make that you don't know who's on the other side. Maybe they take that a little personally. Oh, I, I I'm blind. I can't see. You know, I, and I, I've spoken to people who have responded and say, hey, you know what? Video call doesn't work for me, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Can we do this? You know, it's not perfect, but if that's what's most, if that's what's easiest and most inclusive for them to be able to join the interview process. There's no question. That's what you need to do. And so I, I really think the assumptions we make sometimes in just putting it out there and assuming that people will get there, assuming that video calls work, assuming that phone calls work in person, you always have to be open to that change and, and make sure that you're you're asking people, hey, does this work for you? Is this 
does this does this is this successful for you? Is this easy? I appreciate you being kind of quite open around that, Matthew. And I think um, look, every business is at a different stage with what they've got access to. But I think it, what's clear is your intentionality is in the right place. Um, so that that's really really cool. Um, Breaker, go on. I'll, I'll cut you off there. Go on. <laughs> no, you're okay. Um, so I think there's two sides to this, which is as Matthew was talking about getting people into the process. So making the attraction or the outreach as open as possible in order to um, just have as many pools of talent available to you like why are you making your job harder like that just that literally makes sense um so that there's that part but then there is in the interview process itself how do you still keep those people through the interview process how do you still keep them engaged um we've talked about comms and structured interviewing in itself being like super important but then there's things like um having diverse panels um so um so whether that be uh, by gender whether it be ethnicity whatever reflects your company let's not try and get all um like fake a culture that isn't true um i've been on the receiving end of this like they thought they were making me more com more comfortable they were not um so um let's like let's be smart um you may not have that diversity in your immediate team of the people that would normally interview so let's be smart and reach out to other teams other departments um and like we talked about comms and transparency before and this is a prime spot we don't have any women in our company. We don't have any women in our team or whatever it might be. Tell them, tell them that this is what the experience is going to be. And actually you really value their feedback in both what they're experiencing, but also how you're going to support them when they come into the company. So it's not just a case of, oh, we've ticked that box and we're done. Like that, that's not enough. Um, we've talked about interviewer training already. And again, um, not just around values, but just doing your your legal requirements on what you can and cannot say in an interview, I think is really important. I'm always surprised by how many people don't know this, but like, this is my job. I expect to know this. I don't expect other people. And so it's my job to be able to share that with them um, about what they can and can't say. Um, and again, with the candidate feedback and with the metrics um, to make sure that you're tracking what that looks like, um, to make sure that you're feeding back and um, spotting a problem before it becomes one or on the flip side, a really positive scenario and being able to shout about it internally. I think both of those are, are really important. And when you're talking about the hiring managers and I suppose making sure people know what not to say, what they can say, how do you go about, I suppose, coaching them? Is this coming from that meeting at the beginning or is there some separate interview training you're doing? What do you, how are you doing? How are you making that work? So, so there's, there's a couple of different ways of doing this. Um, so, um, Build, uh, like the ideal for me would be building this in as part of the onboarding process into a company. So it's not a case of, oh, we're about to interview, can you do some interviewer training? Like building that in from day one so that there's a real clear expectation around what interview, interviewing and interview process look like within the company. I think that's really important. When you tie that into this is our culture, these are our values, and this is how we reflect it in our interview process. All you're doing is showing them what that looks like. These are not just words on the wall. These actually 
have real value and meaning within our business. I think those two things are really important. So ideally, you're doing that upfront. There are some absolute legalities um, here in the UK that we definitely need to cover um, our protected characteristics of what you can and can't say. Um, Like, let's not pretend that is not a fun conversation. It is when we don't have to put bells and whistles on it, but you do need to cover it because if someone says something that they're not supposed to say, how old are you? I've actually been in interviews where someone's asked that question and then having to backtrack and explain. No one wants to do that. Um, But if you've told them up front what you can and can't say and why and how, like just get that over and done with. Um, Ideally, you'd also be doing like bias training, and 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 similar and not just oh we've done it as part of onboarding we don't need to do it again like regular cadence on not just the um dni type training but like on just keeping that interviewer quality up there and that might be reinforcing it when you do those kickoff meetings and it might just be reinforcing it when you're doing cal- calibration or wash up meetings post interviews but there are a number of ways in which I think you can do that consistently. Ideally, you've talked about um, platforms that you can use, Paul, um, to kind of help this. No one's got the time to be able to do this one-on-one um, or even one in a group scenario um, on a regular basis. Um, great if you do. Um, but if you don't, ideally, at, if you've got budget, being able to build that in as part of your platform of training, um, I think that that would be the ideal because then it's self-service. Um, and then what you can spend time on is rather than, oh, these are the characteristics, you can go through, um, actually, this is what we actually need to focus on in this interview. This is how we talk about culture in this interview, um, rather than some of the slightly more boring, but very necessarily legal legal stuff. Gotcha. Thanks, Rekha. Matthew, are there any types of, and this may not work, but I was interested to ask it, but are there any types of kind of, is there a toolkit of questions or prompts that you either use yourself or you advise your hiring managers to use to get kind of, get get a good interview um, kind of situation going? There are some that I suggest. Um, uh, we I usually do an exercise to ask the interviewers to, to work on interview questions prior to the process really opening up, mainly because at the end of the day, um, as knowledgeable as I try to be on all the roles that we're hiring for, the different organizations and teams and, and, and roles we have internally, the hiring manager knows what they need to know to find the best candidate, especially because usually the culture stuff, the uh, pers- you know the experience stuff is usually happening in that initial culture screening where I'm talking to the candidate, you know, we don't need tons of other culture style or other types of questions in other interviews, but I'm usually working directly with those hiring managers or interviewers to come up with questions for them. Now, previous companies I've been at, we've had question banks, we've had, uh, you know, people teams that have been responsible for coming up with hundreds and hundreds of questions that uh, we add to a question bank and people can go in and depending on what organization you're hiring for, whether it's marketing or whether it's, uh, you know, uh, engineering or product or support, there's a, a, a tab on that Excel form or Excel doc that has hundreds of questions for that organization. So I think there are, there are obviously different ways to do it, depending on the size of organization you have, the different manpower you have or, or woman power or people power um, in general. Um, but overall, I think at the very least, some sort of exercise should be done beforehand. So it's not just, hey, you have an interview tomorrow, let me know how it goes. But the week before you were preparing for that interview with, Hey, these are the questions, you know, hopefully if you have, if you do have an ATS, you can usually build those questions right into that ATS. So 
you almost don't even need to speak to the person beforehand if you, if you don't have the time. But if you do have that built into the ATS and you can reach out before and say, hey, these questions have been built in. We worked on these together last week. Please, you know, try to stay on topic. Um, I think that's definitely a way that we've built out like question banks from there. And then we take those questions and we store it and we keep those questions over time so we have them at somewhere else. But when it comes to you know inclusivity, I think that's that's a huge step. Like if if they don't know that this there's a reason why consistency is there in the interview process and it's to provide that same consistent experience to whoever might be joining the interview process. So if you really just make it clear that hey, these are the these are the questions, this is the guidance, um, we worked on this, it's built in for you, go ahead. I think that's the the most basic step for someone who maybe doesn't have a full question bank built up. Gotcha. Thanks, Matthew. Raker, anything on question banks at all that you'd add to that? Um, okay, so most interviews are going to cover technical competency, behavioral, problem solving type questions. So, yeah, cool. If you've got a bank, great. I mean, that's my preferred. Um, I think there's a balance between having that consistency of process, which is definitely required, but that authenticity of interviewer like there are questions that I know I'm never going to ask because like I can't like that's just not how I would ask it so like there's a degree of prescription that I think type of question and banks can really help with that as opposed to being this is exactly word for word what you need to say in order to build that consistency so I think I think there's that but for me I think outside of the the, the very specific um types of questions I think it's around um two things which is which we kind of I just touched on a bit before which is asking really open questions like um just getting the candidate to to, to talk and have that conversation with you um, and really listening to be able to follow up and build on what they're saying. Um, I think that is, I don't know about more important, but like that, that helps the experience itself um, for the mm -hmm. candidate feel more positive. It helps you get the information that you need. Um, and it still means you can cover all of those, um, the, the, the key areas, I think, throughout it. But I'll go back to all of those questions that you'll be asking will be linked to the core of what you're trying to cover in that interview, um, whether it be technical, whether it be um, culture or ways of working or whatever it might be. Um, but yeah, link it back to that, I think is really key. Gotcha, thank you, Rekha. Uh, and let's let's talk about, for a second, project-based assessments or tasks. And I suppose, and I'd, I'd ask you to just think a little bit around as well, as you probably are, and I think about this all the time, is uh, AI. And I think, uh, and we think about, say, for software engineering, uh, for example, the, the take-home task, that's, that, there's no point in doing that anymore. There's actually apps now which will allow you to, to cheat on a live technical test, uh, thanks, to, thanks to AI as well. So where do we, how do we fit these in, and is there a place for project-based assessments or tasks? Matthew, what do you think? It's tough. You're absolutely right. I mean, uh... You know, we try to do live assessments. We ask them to share their screens, you know, and to use a specific setting where it shares the whole screen, not just one tab. So, I mean, it, you really have to focus and like get pretty detailed in, in, in how you're offering this assessment. But at the same time, that kind of, it, it goes against some of the inclusivity side of it where it's, you know, maybe someone doesn't have the computer right in front of, you know, access to a computer all the time to do that assessment or, you know, and so I, I think it's a really tough place because AI can do things I can't even I can't even imagine or think about right now. And so it's hard to stop something that has this power that you don't really even know very much. But 
I think it comes down to trust. I mean, uh, you know, how in the first conversations that you had with this person, were you able to build trust or did you feel that there was a passion for this? And I think Rick had mentioned something that was really important. The, the open questions, I, even though you're trying to find specific details and hear specific details, being open is so important because if you're open from the beginning and someone is able to converse with you in a very specific way about different tasks and products and pieces of your business, and you haven't really given much, you've just been open and asking them to speak, that kind of builds that trust, right? Okay, they know what they're talking about. I haven't really given them a topic to speak about, but they're they're getting into the details before I even get there. And so I think if you're able to be open before that technical or that take-home test or project-based you know, uh, assessment of sorts, and, and you are able to hear that openness from them, I think that's really where you're going to know whether, you know, their technical test, you know, aligns with how they spoke. Sometimes you speak to people who you're like, oh, they could be a good cold trad. I'm not sure if they have the experience. And then they absolutely ace their technical and they weren't in front of you. And you're like, wow, that, that seems a bit off. Like they did not come across that way. And so I just think it's important to build that trust early in the, in the interview process and learn about your candidate. I mean, that's why we have recruiters at companies. It's what we're hopefully good at is reading people and understanding people. But um, being open, like Reha said, I think is huge and, and really building that trust from the start is how you're going to know if, if it's really tried. I'm not going to sit here and say I can beat AI yet. You know, who knows what it can do? Someone could have it running in the background. I'm not sure every the ways that people can use it right now, but I am sure of the trust I can build with someone seeing the passion and how they speak, you know, their knowledge, their understanding of this before they get there. I think that is where I can really help or, or see that type of stuff. Yeah, and I like I so I couldn't agree more with Matthew in that we don't know the answer to that. <laughs> like, I just don't think anyone really knows the answer to how we solve AI. I mean, even before you think AI, just video interviewing. If we think about all those examples that you heard, um, particularly during and post pandemic, about oh the candidate that interviewed and they performed really well, and then someone turns up and they're is that the same person? Did that? Did that? I, like, do, are they performing the same way? Like, so that like you don't even have to think about AI before you think about some of the challenges that you know we will have to overcome as part of the interview process in itself. Um, but yeah, AI absolutely adds a new dimension. Um, and yeah, I, yeah, I don't think we have an answer. What I do think though is if you are going to give a task, like be really clear, be really clear with your candidate and with your team around what it is you're trying to achieve. What are, what are you actually trying to gauge? Um, how are you assessing that project or the task that they're working on? Um, I don't think it's a deal breaker to kind of talk them through the kind of competencies that you're looking through. Um, you're not giving them the answer, you're just making sure that they cover those things. What's the worst thing that will happen is they turn up, they've answered the question, but they haven't answered the very specific thing that you haven't told them. Like that's a waste of everybody's time. So I think being open and upfront around that, I think is really important. Um, ideally, if possible, you really want to build in some collaboration into the project itself. So whether it be, okay, they've had to go home with a brief and they can come in and they can present it to a team and then there's an open Q&A. Okay, cool. That can work. Um, if it's a technical task, give them a pairing task. Um, then you can kind of assess ways of working as well as their technical skill set. Um, but I think ideally, the, the thing you really want to get and you don't always win, um, is um, you want to make it as enjoyable as possible, like as reflective as what it's like to do this job um, for that company and reflect that in the process. Like if you're going to give them a 10-hour take-home task, 
ouch. Um, but if that's the case, tell them it's going to take that long. Like really, I think you should really only be aiming for like an hour or two um, in, in a take home task. Um, but with you say an hour or two, most candidates will take longer. So just because they want to do a good job. Um, and that is where I do have mixed thoughts around take home tasks. Um, generally, it, um, it, 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 it is unfavorable to those that are in underrepresented communities. Um, whilst both men and women can be parents, the bulk of the uh, workload does fall to the mothers. So expecting them to take out time, especially when it's not just one interview, it'll be several interviews, it'll be with multiple companies, and expecting them to find time to be able to do that. Um, those that might be carers, those that have, I don't know, second particularly if they're in early in career like it can put them at a disadvantage so i feel like um i i, I can i can totally see the value don't get me wrong i i use them um but like be considerate and compassionate towards that candidate in their situation you might want to get it done by the end of the week but you know they've got their own life so if you they, they want to push it to the next week like just be understanding of that i think um i think more than anything and ideally, where possible, build that in to the interview process itself so that they're not having to do too much outside of work. So um, at Armacuni, we do a pairing task. The most they have to do in advance is to make sure they get their setup correctly so that they can screen share, they can do all the things that we, they want um, and to download all the relevant bits and pieces. But the, the task itself is in the interview. Um, but there are others where we've, we've absolutely had to do it in um, outside of hours and then it's presenting. Um, but then it's let, let's give them the, the breakdown of what it is they're being assessed on. Again, you want to make it feel... Um, Yes, it's an interview, but they're like they're um, like you're giving them an opportunity to shine rather than trying to catch them out. I think that's really important. Yeah, I think that's that's the message as well. Is it one one of the key messages from this is that we are trying to give candidates the, the best possible platform to, to be the best possible version of themselves uh, in that process. Um, and final question, and very cross stay with you on this one. Um, from what you've seen and what you've implemented, have you seen any direct correlation between? improving that interview process and candidate experience to quality of hire, however it is you may measure that? Uh, yes. Uh, so, um, like, if you're building in structure, whether it was there or not before, right, if, but if you're building in structure into your process, in itself, it should mean that you're covering more of those key aspects of the role that should tell you whether or not that person is a good hire. So that in, that alone should mean that you're, yes, you're getting more quality of hire as a result I think when you then factor in all the training and all the other things that you're trying to do and getting everybody on the same page again like it should mean that you're getting uh, a better I say better quality of hire we all make dud hires like let's not pretend like it absolutely happens it doesn't matter how much you cover like some people are not always going to be open around how they present themselves or actually you know what there's always going to be an anomaly regardless of how you interview accept that um, and make sure that you're covering all your metrics and make sure that, that they are the anomaly as opposed to the norm. Um, but I do think that like just building in that structure in itself should mean that you improve the quality of hire. But outside of quality of hire, um, if you're, if by doing that, you're improving the candidate experience, you're showcasing more about what the company is like what the values of those company are like they're getting to meet more people they're getting to ask more questions 
that alone should mean that the candidates themselves also self-select out when they realize this is this is what it's going to be like or this is not what it's going to be like and whether they want to do it or not so there's a there's kind of two parts of us being able to assess in the right way but the candidate also assessing us and making sure that they are choosing to go to the right place there's no point putting on a facade and then on day one they arrive and they're like oh this is not what i was expecting um like they might be a great hire but if they hate it there they're going to leave anyway so like ask in the interview make sure it's clear in the interview process so i think that's really key Thanks, Rika. And Matthew, final, yeah, final, the same question to you, really. Have you, as you're kind of putting together and improving the, the interview process at, at Source, have you seen any correlation to the impact of people are able to make when they join the company and their success? It, it's been very clear, actually. And, and it's not to say that people we hired before we had an interview process are less strong than people than after we had an interview process. I think it's more just the work that went in to find strong candidates and the time and effort in a sense to find strong candidates was just it was very it was a much more efficient product i mean before we weren't we didn't have any linkedin recruiter account which now we do we didn't have um you know we're, we're actually just building a career page finally which will give people more access to what we're doing i mean every step we take i think has shown even a small progression in how in the quality of hire we made i mean every hire we've made seems to get faster and faster, more efficient and more efficient, stronger and stronger. Um, we're getting our name out there more. I mean, bre employer branding is becoming a huge part of not just people, but you know, the people work, but recruiting in general, because we are representing that, you know, our employer brand, as, as Rick has said, I mean, this is our, our culture screening is not only an interview, for, you know, for us to speak to the candidate, but I, I split the time half and half. I give them 15 minutes to ask me questions and tell me about them. And I take 15 minutes to tell them about the company and myself and the role. So I, I want, we want it to be a two-way interview. And I think building that into the process, not just in the interview, but in also how we communicate through, you know, through our job posts and other things with, I mean, here in New York and the U.S., transparency laws are changing the game, right? So frankly, it takes out almost an entire interview sometimes now that we just have to post the range on, on our salary band on the, the job description. I mean, we're not the kind of group that's saying 50k to 250k and letting them guess right we're if we have a role we're putting a 20 to 30 maybe 40k range if there's like a big you know gap of who we could hire but every single thing we do in the process to make it more efficient salary bans on job descriptions linkedin recruiter ats being implemented now we've seen a very clear impact of quality of hire and i guess we'll know more in three to six months since we don't have any you know, full-time W-2 hires here in the U.S. that have been here longer than four or five months. So I think we're still seeing, myself included, and so I think we're still seeing a lot of that. But there's no doubt in my mind that when an effort is actually put forth towards building an efficient, effective, inclusive, diverse, you know, there's probably 20 different ad ad adjectives I can use there, but interview process, the quality of hire follows. I mean, you, you start to see not just quality of hire, but quality of candidates. Like you you speak to people, the group that you're speaking to is, is better. You don't need to speak to 25, 30 people. You can speak to six, seven, eight people and find a good candidate in that group because you know what you're looking for more. You know more of your target. You have more employer branding to offer and, and to show. Absolutely. I, I think totally the answer. The, the long answer would be yes, Paul. I think that's the long answer here. Yes, definitely. 
Fantastic. Baker, did you have something to add there? You look like you were going to... Uh, yeah, well, I mean, we haven't talked about it at all, but um, like a key aspect of all, like all the stuff we've talked about, great, but you need to get your stakeholders on board. You need to get all the people in the interview process involved, uh, involved and it often requires a cultural mind shift. Um, you know, CEO or fellow exec, no, your opinion isn't the only one that counts anymore. Like people being able to step away from being in the detail all the time in itself is a challenge. Um, and effectively, particularly as recruiters, what we're trying to do is build a process that will scale. Um, so it's not just trying to make a process that works now when we're 20 people or when we get to 50. It's being able to make a process that we can edit and adjust as we get to 100, 200 people. So getting that stakeholder buy-in into what and why we're doing something I think is really key in order to be able to make all the other stuff that we've talked about really important. Totally. Yeah, I'm with you. Thank you so much. Right, and I think that that's a, a good place to finish up. So next week, uh, we're going to be, we obviously just finished off on a question there about quality hire. Next week, we're going to be talking about how to take our TA metrics and speak in the commercial language that the rest of the business understands, it's particularly those stakeholders like you were talking about a minute ago, Rekha. Uh, but thank you so much uh, for doing this today. Thank you for locking on to the listeners. But Rekha, Matthew, thank you so much for sharing so many insights. And uh, yeah, we appreciate you. It's it was great. a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Hope to speak to you both soon. Likewise. Thanks, everybody. See you next Bye. week.